Today's scripture is Isaiah 42, 10 through 16. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth, you who go down to the sea and all that fills it. The coastlands and the inhabitants, let the desert and its cities lift up their voice. The villages that Kadar inhabits the, and the inhabitants of Salah sing for joy. Let, the sh- let them shout from the tops of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his p- praise in the coastlands. The Lord goes out like a mighty man. Like a man of war, he stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. For a long time I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. And I will lead the blind in a way they do not know, in paths that they have not known. I will guide them. I will turn their darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. All right. Good morning. How are we? Are we good? Yeah. Um, so every like six or seven weeks, I kind of don't preach so that I can study and read and catch up and sometimes teach a class, which is right after this. If you were paying attention, it's going to be awesome. Um, and so, um, I try to get people in our community that, um, are deep thinkers and are, you know, uh, just natural kind of shepherds and leaders. And so today we have a special guest speaker, um, who is one of our house church leaders, um, whose house church has grown over and over and had to split a couple times because it just gets so big because so many people want to hear what they have to say. Um, and, and the community there is, is fostered well. And so, um, I asked for them to come speak to us today. And so if you would give a warm welcome and a, and a keen ear to Emily Carlisle. Thank you. Good morning, Watermark. Um, As Tommy said, my name is Emily Carlisle, for those of you who have yet to meet. um, And I am excited and humbled, and to be perfectly frank, just a little bit nervous to be standing before you this morning. Um, So the passage that Brett just read for us includes imagery of God as a laboring woman. And I encountered this imagery in a book um, by Dr. Lauren Winner called Wearing God, and it's a book about different biblical metaphors for God, and there's an entire chapter on this particular metaphor. And when I read it, I was absolutely fascinated, but I can tell you that um, my fascination with the birthing process did not start there. Um, My mother is a certified nurse midwife, and in the 1980s, she owned her own birthing practice here in Tampa. And so as a nursing mom, she would cart me with her um, to her various births. While I obviously don't remember that experience, um, I do have a few very clear um, memories of my fascination with the birthing process as a kid. The first being that I always begged for birth stories as bedtime stories. Weird, I know. Um, and then the second one being the look of abject horror on my sixth grade language arts teacher's face when I got up before my 11 and 12 year old peers and I presented my project on an occupation in which I was interested, that being nurse midwifery. And I proceeded to unravel a poster of a photograph 
a life-size, very zoomed-in image of a woman who was crowning. <laughs> Single men, if you don't know what that is, you can Google it later, but I suggest you don't Google image it. So, all of that to say that I am fascinated um, by this birthing process and this image of God as a woman in labor, and I'm excited to delve into it with you this morning. Um, We will look through all seven of the verses um, from this passage of Isaiah, um, but we're going to focus most closely on this image of God as a woman in labor and talk about how all of the surrounding verses tie into that image. So if you'll pray with me, please. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to be able to come together this morning um, and lift up songs of praise to your name. We are thankful for your presence in each of our lives and ask that you would speak to each of our hearts individually this morning. God, I pray that you would give me clarity of mind and clarity of speech um, and that only your truths would pass through my lips. In Jesus' name, amen. So the passage of scripture today comes from Isaiah 42, verses 10 through 16. Um, And this particular section of scripture was written while a significant slice of the Judean population um, was living in Babylonian captivity. And it describes the redemptive work that God is promising to undertake on behalf of his people. Um, And so this particular passage and roughly the surrounding 15 chapters all deal with the questions that the Babylonian captivity raises for God's people. Namely, can God restore us and does God want to restore us? Can God restore us and does God want to restore us? So I want to start by um, looking back over verses 10 through 12 together. Um, So it says, Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. Let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the habitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. So these three verses together enjoin us to sing a new song of praise to God. And there are various geographical locations mentioned in the course of these three verses. It talks about the coastlands um, and the um, extent of the very edges of the earth. It mentions two specific places as well, Kadar and Selah. Kadar is... um, a tribe of relatively wealthy people on the Arabian Peninsula in the desert. And Selah is actually an unknown um, location, but it's thought to represent the very extremes of human habitation. And so the purpose in mentioning these various geographic locations um, is to drive home the point that it is people everywhere who are being called upon to sing God's praise. Um, and it's of note that we are called to sing a new song of praise to God. And the newness of this song is most likely in reference to the new work that God is promising to undertake on behalf of his people. Um, and that is that he has promised to return a remnant um, from Babylonian captivity back to their homeland. 
Um, and this would indeed be a new thing because never before in recorded history had a group of people returned to their homeland after being held captive by the Assyrians or the Babylonians. And so what God is doing is a new thing. Um, and in delivering a remnant back to their homeland, God is showing his faithfulness and his graciousness to Israel, which is a beautiful reminder to all of God's creation of his faithfulness and his graciousness. Hence, it is people everywhere who are being called upon to sing praise to God. Now, these verses are situated immediately um, preceding two seemingly distinct images of God. God as a warrior in verse 13, and then God as a laboring woman in verse 14. Um, but what these two images have in common is the fact that they speak of a God who is working to deliver his people. And so with these three verses situated right before these two images, um, we are given a call to declare God's praise and to encourage him in the midst of his work of delivering his people by raising up songs of praise. And so perhaps when we join together every Sunday morning, it is truly an encouraging sound to his ears. So the next verse, um, verse 13 says, the Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. This image of God going out like a mighty man conjures up images of a God who charges onward with purpose and with strength. The verse goes on to say, like a man of war, he stirs up his zeal. God is moving forward with enthusiasm and effort for the task at hand. The second half of the verse talks about the vocal nature of God as he cries out and he shouts aloud. Um, And this helps to make God's physical presence known. So this image of God as a warrior um, demonstrates God's strength and power as he is overcoming the enemy and the sin of this world in the midst of delivering his people. Verse 14 continues um, to speak of God's redemptive work, but it shifts to the first person as God speaks of laboring on behalf of his people. Verse 14 says, For a long time I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. So the first half of this verse is a reminder that while at times we may not feel or sense like anything is happening, God, who alone can save us, will act. And so perhaps a parallel could be made um, to the apparent inactivity during the nine months of gestation prior to labor. While certainly there is much preparation that's occurring in that Um, time, it pales in comparison to the active bringing forth of new life during the process of laboring. So we're going to delve into the imagery in the second half of this verse um, from the perspective of a woman going through natural childbirth. 2,600 years ago when this piece of scripture was written, and frankly for most of human history, that's been the only option without the help of the marvels of modern medicine. 
Um, so as with any metaphor imagery of God, it is a very incomplete picture of who God is. But metaphors nonetheless um, are placeholders and they are given to us as gifts from Scripture. So I want to take a look um, at what St. Augustine of Hippo has to say about our attempts to describe who God is. God becomes all to you, for he is the whole of these things which you love. If you regard things visible, neither is God bread, nor is God water, nor is God this light, nor is he garment, nor house, for all these are things visible and single separate things. What bread is, water is not, and what a garment is, a house is not, and what these things are, God is not, for they are visible things. God is all this to you. If you hunger, he is bread to you. If you thirst, he is water to you. If you are in darkness, he is light to you, for he remains incorruptible. If you are naked, he is a garment of immortality to you. When this corruptible shall put on incorruption, and this mortal shall put on immortality, all things can be said of God, and nothing is worthily said of God. Nothing is wider than this poverty of expression. You seek a fitting name for him, you cannot find it. You seek to speak of him in any way soever, you find that he is all. So St. Augustine obviously understood um, this idea that human speech fails to capture the fullness of who God is. Um, Nonetheless, um, in our attempts to speak of God, metaphors can be helpful. And so viewing God as a woman in labor, I would have to imagine for a lot of you as a less comfortable image of God than say God as shepherd or God as king. Images um, that we encounter more often um, in hymns and liturgy and spoken of from pulpits on Sunday mornings. Um, But limiting our image of God to three or four more comfortable images truncates our understanding of God. And consequently, um, it limits our view of who we are as people bearing his image. And so hopefully um, today, looking at a less used biblical image of God can help broaden our understanding of who God is. So to limiting um, our speech about God to the grammatical masculine Um, can limit our understanding of God. Speaking of God solely with the grammatical masculine subtly teaches us to view God as something that God is not, and that would be exclusively male. The Syriac church for roughly 400 years spoke of God using the grammatical feminine, and the early church father Jerome certainly understood this when he said, in the deity there is no sex. So this being a distinctly feminine image of God will hopefully allow us to broaden our use of the grammatical feminine. Although, to be quite frank, I'm not sure how many times I will be able to refer to God as she or her um, during the rest of this sermon, because the grammatical masculine has certainly been culturally ingrained in me. Um, And referring to God as she is uncomfortable for me, as I'm sure it is for a lot of you. Um, But I believe that it is a good uncomfortable one that helps to push the boundaries of our narrow perspective. Um, So as we delve into this image of God in the latter half of verse 14, um, I want to look at it by answering the question, what are some common experiences of women 
in labor that can inform our view of God's character. Um, so I've come up with five, and this is certainly not an exhaustive list. Um, but the first one would be that breathing plays a central role in the laboring process. Moaning and panting are used by women in labor as a way to manage the pain. Groaning in labor can literally help relax the body. Um, the famous midwife Ina May Gaskin is known for saying open mouth, open bottom, which essentially means um, that as you are moaning and panting and groaning, um, that it actually helps to physically relax a woman's cervix. Um, Gaskin encourages laboring women to, quote, make a sound pitch low enough to vibrate your chest. And many of the birth stories that I have read about um, and that I have um, asked my girlfriends about, there comes a point where um, women find themselves making very guttural, animal-like noises. Um, in one of the birth stories that I read, a woman named Carrie said that in the midst of labor, she started, quote, moaning and vocalizing. Soon my moaning tur- turned into a melodic hum. It was completely unplanned and seemingly instinctual. Another woman, Chloe, recounted, quote, I let out a sound that really startled me. It was a very deep and very loud roar like an animal. Where did that come from? The famous primal scream. So I want to look again um, at verse 14. Um, it says, For a long time I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. So this image of God as a woman in labor is an image that is focusing on God's breath in the laboring process. Um, the second and third verbs that are used um, are the uh, Hebrew words nisham and shapa, and they stress that God's breath is not at ease in the midst of laboring. The first verb used that's being translated cry out um, is a Hebrew word that's actually only used here in the Hebrew Bible. It's not used any other place. And it would perhaps more accurately be translated to groan or to bellow. And so looking at all three of these verbs together, it makes it clear that what God is undertaking is very effortful. Um, And so God's groaning um, and his bellowing signals his active participation in this process of bringing forth new life. Um, He's not fighting against the pain that would literally just make it worse, but he's choosing to enter into it. God's breath here is acting as the agent of life, just like um, in Genesis, it was God's breath that breathed life into Adam. The second um, common experience of women in labor is that women are provided support during the laboring process. Um, And this support can take a variety of forms. Some women choose um, to hire a doula to help her throughout the process. Certainly many women have their mothers present and their spouses, um, some form of medical professional, whether that's a doctor or a midwife. Even older children can act as a form of support for a laboring mother. I can just imagine the little girl in this image having such joy and being able to have just a small part to play in this process. And her mama saying, okay, on this next 
This next contraction, just push right here on the small of my back, and that will help Mama feel so much better. Um, and just the sheer joy that this girl must experience, having some small part to play in the bringing forth of her little baby brother or her little baby sister into this world. The baby itself actually also helps um, act as support. A few days prior to laboring beginning, it's the baby who helps stimulate estrogen that helps to soften the mother's cervix. And it's the baby's head that helps prod open the mother's cervix. Music itself can also be a support for a woman in labor. There's been contemporary studies that have shown um, that a woman who has a musical labor experiences less physical pain than a woman who goes through non-musical labor. And so perhaps um, the three verses um, preceding this image really help to drive home the point um, that we can... um, encourage God in the process of the pain and the toil of laboring. The third common experience of women in labor is the idea that labor is painful. And I'm not going to stand up here and pretend like I understand the extent of that pain as a woman who has not experienced labor, but I read another birth story. Um, So, a woman named Charlotte said, quote, Later on, the midwife suggested I push into the pain to get it to move, that I would go through it to the other side. I tried and found it to be true, that in hunkering down into it, there was a rush of lightness. Genesis 3 tells us that pain in childbirth is a punishment assigned to us as a result of the fall. And so to me, perhaps the most beautiful part of this image is the idea that God is choosing to take on the punishment that he has assigned to us to experience the physical pain of labor. The groans that are born out of the pain of laboring are both a sign of humanity's distance from God, because they are a punishment for our sin, and yet at the same time they're a beautiful reminder of God drawing near to us, of his intimate identification with us as he is choosing to take on the pain of labor. The pain and the physical toil of labor can be so great at times that some women in the process of laboring don't think that they can continue. Um, and so some women get to that point. Um, and to me, I think a parallel could be drawn um, to that moment in the Garden of Gethsemane where for a moment Jesus asks for the Father to take the cup. Jesus knows that the pain and the suffering that he is about to endure on the cross will bring forth new life, and yet for a moment, he asks for the Father to take the cup. The fourth common experience of women in labor is that some women experience something called non-progressing labor. This is often also termed failure to progress. And the idea here is that... um, Women have been 
laboring for hours and um, the measurement of their cervix has not increased, or that a woman has been pushing for hours and the baby is still in the exact same position. And so some women who are in this place who are experiencing failure to progress often think there has been all of this pain and all of this effort and I have nothing to show for it. And so some women utterly exhausted get to this place and I can't help but think if that is what God feels like when he looks out on our world. When God sees the wars and the addictions, when he sees our destruction of the environment, when he sees us snubbing our neighbor, when God sees the violence behind closed doors, does God wonder if her labor is working? Is God bone tired? Does she want a break from the pain? Now, I am confident that God will deliver on his promise to redeem and restore his creation. God tells us in Philippians 1.6 that the good work that he has started in us, he will carry on to completion in Christ Jesus. But I can't help but wonder if God has those thoughts as he looks at our wearisome world. The fifth common experience... um, a woman in labor that I want to look at today is the idea that laboring is an intricate combination of bodily vulnerability and bodily strength. Perhaps the most uncomfortable part of this image of God is imagining a divine body that swells and that leaks bodily fluid and blood, um, that shakes uncontrollably and that becomes physically exhausted. Women who are experiencing labor, choose to open themselves up and make themselves vulnerable to the pain and the suffering of labor. And yet at the same time, their body is demonstrating its extreme strength and power through this process. The female body was made to do this. It knows what it's doing. It can accomplish this task. And so to me, this is a beautiful reminder of God's sovereignty um, as he is choosing to make himself vulnerable, knowing that new life will be brought forth in the process. God as a woman in travail can remind us of the centrality of God's vulnerability for our relationship with him. His incarnate dwelling among us makes him vulnerable to the brokenness of human life. And his calling of us to be the church, to be his body, makes him vulnerable to our failings and our rejections of his call upon our life. This image of God as a woman in labor, laboring for our redemption, reminds us that God has made himself vulnerable for our sake. So I want to continue on um, with the last two verses and talk about how they tie in with this image of God as a laboring woman. Verse 15 says, I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. So God's laborious work is bringing both Redemption and judgment. 
God is promising to lay waste to mountains and hills. These are things that are seemingly immovable. Um, and so that would imply that um, there is nothing that can escape God's judgment. And so in this verse, immediately following the imagery of God as a woman in labor, um, God is changing to, or promising to change the physical landscape, to take away our means of sustenance by making the land barren. And in making the land barren, God is reminding us that it is he who is the sole source of life. Verse 16 goes on to say, And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know, in paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. As God is actively working to redeem and restore her creation, she promises to guide us. We are not the ones in charge. We are not the authors of our story. At the same time, we are not called to sit by the wayside, but rather to join her in her mighty work and to be guided by her hand. In the messiness of life... We can feel exhausted and overwhelmed, and sometimes the next step or the next 100 steps can seem totally unclear, but God promises to guide us, to take us by the hand, and to make us bearers of light for the nations. We are not called to be the ones in charge, but rather to praise God for the new life that he offers and to allow him to guide us. When God called Pedro Claver to labor alongside her in the messy, tiresome work of redeeming creation, Pedro, a Jesuit priest, devoted his life to serving the black slaves of Colombia, many of whom suffered from the leprosy and the smallpox brought by their conquerors. God used Pedro to turn darkness into light. When God called John Huss to labor alongside her in the messy, tiresome work of redeeming creation, John spoke out against the church's sale of indulgences, protested the crusades, and was burned at the stake for obeying his conscience. God used John to turn darkness into light. When God called Anne Hutchinson to labor alongside her in the messy, tiresome work of redeeming creation, Anne, who knew it was illegal for women to teach from the Bible in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, did it anyway. God used Anne to turn darkness into light. When God called Brent to labor alongside her in the messy, tiresome work of redeeming creation, Brent heeded the call and now wakes up earlier than most single men on Saturday mornings to prepare breakfast for his homeless brothers and sisters, serving it with a smile and offering hope. God is using Brent to turn darkness into light. When God called Phyllis and Doug to labor alongside her in the messy, tiresome work of redeeming creation, Phyllis and Doug opened their hearts and opened their home to children in the foster care system. 
offering a nurturing, nurturing and stable and loving environment. God is using Phyllis and Doug to turn darkness into light. Brothers and sisters, our mother is calling us to join her in the hard, messy, tiresome work of bringing new life into this wearisome world. Come, join her. As we enter into a time of communion, communion servers, you can go ahead and get ready. I want to leave you with the words of a 13th century mystic. For are you not my mother and more than my mother? The mother who bore me, labored in delivering me for one day or one night, but you, my sweet and lovely Lord, labored for me for more than 30 years. Ah, with what love you labored for me and bore me through your whole life. But when the time approached for you to be delivered, your labor pains were so great that your holy sweat was like great drops of blood that came out from your body and fell on the earth. When the hour of your delivery came, you were placed on the hard bed of the cross, and your nerves and all your veins were broken. And truly, it is no surprise that your veins burst when in one day you gave birth to the whole world. If you'll pray with me, please. Oh, gracious God, we are so grateful for your willingness to take on the pain and the suffering of the cross so that new life may be brought forth. God, we ask that you would open our eyes to the brokenness within ourselves and to the brokenness in the world around us and that you would give us hearts that are willing to be guided by your hand. In Jesus' name, amen. Take some time. Talk to Jesus.